The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Porpoises? I didn't say that. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Ken McGrath. If you thought you understood the microbiome, you better hold on to your hat. This is going to be a serious blowbrain incident. Blowbrain? I didn't say that. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. So, did you start packing yet? Uh, No, I will do that Wednesday night, probably at midnight. (laughs) That's not true. That is likely to be true. (laughs) Oh, no. Come on. Now I roll. Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm great, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing great, and, you know, we're gearing up to go to Las Vegas. We're taking this show on the road. Is this a road show? Can we do a road show? We can. We absolutely can. have to dig can. that equipment out. Yeah, let's get the equipment out, but it's always fun. We to should do. have those live events, sell tickets and yeah. stuff. Have, like, a live studio audience. The only problem is we'd probably not know what to talk about. We'd just, we would just banter. staring at each other. <laughs> uh, what do we do now, Patty? I know. There's people here. <laughs> Anyway, this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report. Mm-hmm. It's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. Thank you very much, Genova. It's where we talk about things like precision medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. And if you like some of the stuff Michael just rambled on about, perhaps go to iTunes or Spotify, Spotify and do the likey, subscribey things. Hit the buttons and the thumbs up and all that good stuff. Review. Leave us a review. Smack we need that more subscribe button. There's no smacking of buttons, Smack Michael. It. No. Um, and so... Yeah, Vegas is going to be interesting. It's always awesome. You know, we get to see so many of our friends, so many brilliant people speaking, um, and get to learn some stuff, too. Have some fun. It's Vegas, you know what I mean? But it's always fun when people come up to the booth looking for for us because they don't quite know what we look like. So that's always fun to get to meet people who listen to the show. I always wonder this, too. Like, when I listen to podcasts, you get a certain Uh image of what somebody might look like when you hear their voice. 100%. And so I wonder if that that is happening in somebody's minds. Like, maybe my mom probably knows what I look like, (laughs) and she's one of the listeners. But anyone else who might be listening, I wonder what they think I look like based on what I sound like. You know what I mean? Well, I'll say this. Draw some caricatures. Send them to me. Send them to podcast at gdx.net. Well, actually, those caricatures already exist. And in fact, you look exactly like the cartoon caricature on our logo. Hmm. Forgot about that. Yeah. Anyway, Patty, what are we talking about today? We are calling our friend Dr. Ken McGrath, the smartest guy we know, yeah. who is genius of all things microbiome. And he's been kind of our friend over the past couple of years and has been actually teaching the doctors in our department. And if you thought you knew everything there is to know about the microbiome, you're about to be blown away. Yeah. Like I said in the intro, it's blood brain. <laughs> Get ready. Hold on to your skulls. <laughs> Let's bring him on, shall we? So, Michael. Yes. I am honored that we have our friend here. You honored know, isn't even the right word. The international man of mystery and the microbiome. That's right. It's Dr. <laughs> Ken McGrath. And for those of you who are unaware, we have an international friend who's a genius. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ken McGrath is the clinical solutions manager at Microba Life Sciences, a world leader in microbiome metagenomic analysis based in Australia. 
Ken obtained his PhD in molecular biology from the University of Queensland and has an extensive research background in microbial genomics and metagenomic analysis. Ken has been a member of several international microbiome research projects, including monitoring antibiotic resistance through the Australian Outbreak Initiative and the U.S.-based MetaSub projects, as well as the use of metagenomics to study extreme microbial communities around the globe with the Extreme Microbiome Project XMP. Ken works with the global partners team at Microba, helping people understand the technology that powers Genova's microbiomics test and the clinical value that comes from accurately measuring the gut microbiome. And with that, welcome finally, Ken McGrath. G'day. How's it going? (laughs) It's going well. It's going well. So you are a professional smarty pants. And so the question I'm wondering first right off the gate is, why did a young Dr. Ken McGrath decide to pursue molecular biology um, of, over other specialties that I'm sure you would also be it's equally proficient at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you make it sound so intentional that it like, just <laughs> happened with a, a clear goal in mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I was always a bit of a nerdy kid, I guess, you know, as a child out growing up on a farm in mm. rural Australia. I just like science. Um, my mother got me the chemistry kits and even like the, the microscope set and yeah. just really loved learning so much about the world um, but at a certain point that I started to get really interested in genetics and DNA hmm. and you know, I think it was when I was out in one of the fields doing some um, weed chipping like actually removing weeds thinking weeds are so strong they grow everywhere and the crops are really weak and yeah. they're not resilient there must be DNA behind this so I wonder if you can combine them somehow and make the plants that you want to grow stronger Hmm. Um, so that was like an idea, but of course, that's pretty much what's happening in modern crop mm-hmm. genomics right. around the world. So right. that got me started on the, the path of learning about how does DNA make a cell or a, an organism do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, yeah, ended up doing a PhD in agricultural uh, fungal genomics and plant microbe interactions. Hmm. And it was quite specific at that point. It was really around like a single organism, like a pathogen infecting a plant. But through that, my postdoc got involved in the soil microbe community. So looking at how all the different organisms together in soil start to change how plants grow. And that can be something like looking at productivity, uh, how much grain is yielded from a a crop depends on the different microbes that are in the soils Mm. that it grows in. Um, We also looked at greenhouse gas emissions from soils and looked at uh, nitrous oxide. Um, Some soils tend to really cause fertilizers to end up as greenhouse gases and others don't. So that was the start of the microbial community journey. Mm. Uh, mm. And of course, you know, soil's fun and I still like gardening myself, but really I think humans are a bit more interesting. <laughs> so that um, got me involved in the human gut microbiome and that's taken me to where I am today with microba. I love that. Yeah. So yeah, professional smarty pants. Yeah, I think well, you said it per- perfectly well there. So. It's interesting too because <laughs> what we know now about soil and the the like you were saying the microbes, the microbiome or the the biomes within the soil impacting yields and things of that nature and what we know about how, you know, antibiotics pesticide use can impact that. It almost has a kind of indirect correlation to our own personal microbiome and our own sense of health. Yeah, that's right. It's it's sort of just becoming understood that the way that we use different farming techniques has an impact on the soil community and that has a lasting effect on uh, soil health and productivity and the human guts the same you know the things that we apply to our gut be they foods or 
medicines or treatments or even things that we don't intend to apply seem to be impacting the microbiome in a way that can impact our long-term health. And so uh, it's really quite a fascinating field of research because we're just starting to sort of fold back the layers and understanding around how that works. Mm -hmm. And there's some really great uh, research and evidence now around different metabolites, so different products that are being produced or broken down by the microbiome and how they actually influence human health. Love it, love it. So over the past few years, we've gotten to know you, Ken. And as Genova has partnered with Microba to, to put out the microbiomics, this metagenomic stool profile, we, you've done a lot of teaching to our entire medical affairs team. So Ken McGrath has basically taught all the doctors here at Genova what we know about metagenomics and, and the newest things around the microbiome. But we know, notoriously, clinicians throw out technology names without really understanding what they're even saying. They hear it on the street, oh, this is the next best thing, and they say this is better than that. They don't really understand what they're talking about. So <laughs> as one of those, Respectfully. as we used to be prior to meeting Dr. Ken McGrath, how do you explain to clinicians the difference between 16S technology, which you know we have on the GI effects, and the new whole genome sequencing, which we're now measuring on microbiomics? So how do you explain that in layman's terms to a doctor? Yeah, sure. Look, it's really around understanding the journey behind the technology, um, you know, the, the history of these technologies that ended up to where we are today. So you've got to start with 16S saying, it was such a revolution in thinking around how microbes exist um, and how to start to categorize them. Um, just for context, 16S, it's a gene. Uh, it's part of the bacterial genome that actually produces, this is a bit complex, but it produces a RNA transcript that is functional. Um, it's the ribosome. Mm-hmm. And the ribosome is a, a thing, it's a structure that actually helps convert messenger RNA into protein. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a translation of genomic information into a functional thing, like an enzyme or a structural protein. So that's the um, ribosome is the folded piece of RNA that actually helps do that in a cell. But someone very clever in the 70s, I believe it was, worked out that pretty much all bacteria have a 16S gene that produces this ribosome. And because of that, you can actually use similarities in the genetic sequence to work out how closely related different bacteria are. Because through evolution, you get mutations and different divergences that happen in the gene. And if two 16S regions are very similar, it means they probably evolved from a, a recent common ancestor. Mm. Whereas if they're quite distinct and quite different, then that split happened a long time ago. Mm. But that gave us a whole new way of thinking about the microbiome and different organisms, and it gave us modern taxonomy in many ways. It really helped us uh, understand the microbial world. So, as I said, very useful technique, and it can be used that way even today. Mm -hmm. There is a limitation, though. You're only looking at a small region of a single gene in an entire genome that uh, really makes up that bacteria. And because of that, you're looking at just this tiniest little snapshot of what's there. You're not really able to understand what the species is. You tend to identify the genus Mm. when you do 16S, but also you don't get any information around the functional genes that are present in the genome that can do things. Mm -hmm. And they're those things that can influence human health. So it was so useful and it, it is still useful to have that, but it's limited. Mm-hmm. And you don't get 
the high resolution detail that you can get from other techniques. So metagenomics is where you don't just look at a single region, you look at the whole genome. You actually sequence all the DNA in a sample and using that, you actually can understand the entire genome of all the organisms that are present. That gives you the ability to identify the species quite accurately, and in many cases, the strain that's present. Mm -hmm. But also then you can look at the function. So you can look at, you know, do we have a gene, say, for butyrate production? And butyrate's a great thing for the gut. And if you find that gene, you can, you can say, well, this organism is a butyrate producer. It has the gene pathway required to convert, say, starch into butyrate. And that then lets you categorize that as a potentially useful bacteria to have because it can do a good thing mm -hmm. for the gut. That's really where the, the powerful comprehension of the microbiome has started to come from with those functional metabolites that are produced or consumed by the microbiome that are doing those things to human health that really have an impact. And I think another thing that's interesting and probably unfamiliar to most clinicians is this concept of the depth of sequencing. And um, it really can... Uh, impact, you know, the overall sensitivity, specificity of a technology like this. So can you talk a little bit about what that even means? What is the depth of sequencing? How is it? Yeah, depth is just a term that scientists have used to describe how much data you're getting back from a sequencing run. So we talk about depth in a number of reads. So these are DNA sequencing reads that you can get back from a sample. You know, if you have a, just a small sequencing run and you just want a little bit of data, you might only want 10,000 reads. And it sounds like a lot, but in terms of understanding a metagenome, it's not much at all. You wouldn't really start to understand all the different diversity you've got in a sample with you know, so few reads. As you increase the number of reads, we call that increasing depth. You're, you're getting deeper into the data. You're getting more data. You can imagine like a pile of sand just piling up. It gets deeper and deeper. It's the same thing with sequencing reads. But what it's giving you is more information. It gives you a better understanding of what is there. It gives you more complete coverage of the genomes. So you understand those functional genes better. And that means you get better resolution of your data. Now, there isn't like a magic sweet spot necessarily. If you increase the number of reads and increase the depth, you can keep getting increased sensitivity. So you can start to detect those rarer microbes in a sample. Uh, and you can keep going as long as you want and spend millions and millions of dollars on your <laughs> sequencing data if you wanted to. But there is a, a sort of functional or a practical limit where we understand beyond a point, the organisms are there in such low abundances, they probably don't have much clinical relevance. You know, we're looking down at 0.01% or lower, where if they're there, it might be interesting, but it's such a, a minute amount, it's unlikely to be able to influence or impact the health of a person. And so that's when you can sort of define the depth of sequencing required to give clinical useful information. Hmm. I have a follow-up question, and I'm just wondering if my logic is is inaccurate in this, but as you're increasing the depth of sequencing and you're getting to that the smaller and, and less uh, abundant part of this, the genome, is it more likely that you're getting to a situation where you're, you're separating into such small substrains that, that these substrains are also likely to be very, very similar um, to the to the species, if that makes sense. Like you start kind of high level, go from genus to species, and then you keep reading and you're getting these things that are probably basically similar in function as microbes compared to what you got from a maybe higher level read. 
Yeah, that's the right the right concept there. As you increase that depth, you do get that high resolution, and so you get increased sensitivity. That gives you an increased capacity to differentiate similar things in the gut, and that would be, for example, two different strains of the same species, and they might differ from just a, a couple of functional genes. That might be the only differences between them, but because they're called different strains, it means we we know enough about them that they have different functions. And there will be a genetic basis to that, which means that some of those genes are different Mm -hmm. and you'll be able to detect that with uh, greater sensitivity with those additional reads. Got it. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'll tell you, as we've been learning about all of this technology, we've had a lot of aha moments here at Genova in the medical affairs department. And one very eye-opening exercise for our team has been wrapping our minds around that rapidly shifting taxonomy and constantly changing bacterial naming and classification. I mean, you touched on this a little bit earlier. And there are very significant differences in naming conventions, depending on which database you go to to identify a bacteria. Can you explain why? First, why are these names always changing? Yeah, I've got a bone to pick with these taxonomists. And then second, like, why is Microbas database so (laughs) superior? Like, why do they have to do this? What's going on? Yeah, look, I I agree. It's frustrating when, like, they, they say, look, you know, this bacteria used to be called this but you know it turns out now we're renaming it and it's now this one i think lactobacillus went through a massive shift recently where they split it up into a whole different bunch of names and yeah it it, on the surface it looks a bit um silly it looks like Mm -hmm. you're just making extra work for us all and have to go back and relearn everything right but it turns out there's really useful and, and quite um important reasons behind this so i'll start by always saying that all taxonomies are wrong, but some taxonomies are useful. Mm. So taxonomies are models. Tax- taxonomies are structures that give us a way to categorize things, but they're never perfect. There'll always be little flaws here and there. Um, the main taxonomy that's used by the majority of researchers up until about five years ago across the globe was from a group called NCBI. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is a big group based in the USA that really has been a global leader in defining naming uh, and again, very useful, really a great resource to use. Uh, NCBI does a whole lot more than that too. So you can um, go to their website and read more about that if you would like. But the taxonomy that NCBI uses was based on things like cell culture. So how did something look when it grew in a Petri dish? And things that grew similarly and looked the same got the same species name. Mm. You know, that's a, a very simplistic way of viewing it, but that's a you know, an approach that they've used. Now, these two organisms that gross in a similar way might look the same could actually be entirely different species or different families of bacteria. And so because of that, it means that that way of categorizing these organisms ends up putting closely together things that could be quite genetically different just based on that uh, phenotypic and um, visual similarity. And that's happened many times uh, there have been things like lactobacillus, which are organisms that will grow in certain ways, that everyone said, oh, it's growing this way, it's a lactobacillus, let's call it that, put it in that category and move on. Without understanding that genetically, it's so different to the lactobacillus next to it in the tree that it really, it shouldn't have been there at all. Mm. And that's why they had to go and say, look, for the lactobacillus, we need to break these up into different things because they're really different organisms and they're doing different things in the gut. And by doing so now, you've got these sort of functional categories based on the genomes. 
the actual genetic information, which is aligned to those functions. And that gives you useful categorization to understand what they're doing and their importance for health. So that's the origin of the uh, GTDB. So it's a genome-based taxonomy database. Mm. And this has come out of University of Queensland. And one of the founders of Microba, uh, Professor Phil Hugenholtz, has founded this concept of rather than categorizing bacteria based on how they grow in a culture and how they look or how they smell even, they will look at the genome and use that genetic information as the basis for the taxonomy. So if something is genetically and genomically similar to something else, they will be grouped together mm-hmm. and they will be of the same species. Or if they're distinct and there's enough variation between the genomes, they get their own category. Okay. Through that, it's divided up the NCBI taxonomy. It's moved things around because they were incorrectly classified, but it's progressed things when we really have a better understanding of the genomic universe of the mm. microbiome. And we're able to even categorize things that haven't got names. Now we can actually say, look, we found a new genome. We have no idea what the species is. It's brand new. It doesn't match anything else. But genetically, it's closest to this group over here uh, at the family or genus level. So we'll, we'll call it that, but then we'll have to give it a code just to name it in the meantime. And that means you can start to actually expand your definition of organisms as you go and as you discover genomes, you can create these um, almost like holding names for organisms. Mm -hmm. You start to then track and look at how they uh, are in a population and you discover that some of these are really important for health. Um, It's really such a powerful way of understanding and increasing knowledge of the microbiome because you have now like a rule book of how to play the game. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's just so powerful. Okay, well, and you guys, I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead, Michael. Oh, I was going to say, you guys have discovered a, a large number of, of new species based on your work over at Microba. Um, so I guess I have two questions. Like, do you have an estimate of how many new species you guys have really discovered? Do you have like a, a wall where you just have all the new ones? And then second, do you guys get to name them? And how do I get my name on one of those? I guys? was going to say this because I was like, I know Michael Chapman's in his basement coming up with Miguel Chapmancia and throwing it in a database. And so that was kind of my question. Like, how are you keeping out the noise? How are you naming these things? Oh, the, the naming thing we'll, we'll cover first because it's really <laughs> quite passionate. And again, Phil, who I mentioned, uh, Professor Phil Hugenholz, um, he's very quite uh, traditional in naming. You know, to, to name an organism, really, you do have to isolate it in culture and define it based on that. And it's it's not you know it's not a a cool thing to call it after yourself. Yeah. Um, it should be called after Sorry, a man. characteristic of the organism itself. <laughs> so basically, it's an ego trip if you name it after yourself, um, <laughs> which you know it's fine if you want to do that. It's, it's, it's okay. But it's not the way that the nomenclature and the naming system should work. So, yeah, if you want to have a, a chat with Phil about that, he will okay, great. very oh, gladly tell you the reasons let's why. Let's do that. <laughs> let's get him on. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, our marketing team's like, oh, this is so cool. You know, we've right. discovered a, a new genome. It's a new species. Let's let's give people the chance to name it. But, um, yeah, our, our scientific foundation tells us that, no, that's not the right thing to do. I appreciate Aww. that. I, I do appreciate that. And, but you guys have found a, a large number of original species. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so many different ones. And I don't have a number at hand, but it would be approaching, you know, that several hundred uh, new species cool. that Microba has identified in the human gut just by doing the, the sequencing services and the, the gut microbiome analysis that we do. 
And in the early days, it was very high. Like we had a figure that in the first six months, I think 99% of people who were tested had a unique species or an undiscovered species in them. Hmm. There was just so much diversity mm-hmm. in the, the human gut microbiome. But over time, of course, that starts to decline. And so you have sort of a plateau effect. And we're not there yet. We haven't saturated our understanding of the genomes in the gut, but we're getting close every day. So it's rarer now to discover new genomes and new species mm-hmm. in the gut just because we've done so much work here already. Makes sense. Makes but, sense. Um, what it's really done is it's been it's been a way to identify this almost uh, this microbial black space or, or the unknown mysteries parts of the microbiome that previously or using a different technique or even a different sequencing service would have been invisible to you. Mm-hmm. It would have come up saying, oh, we, these, these pieces don't match anything we know. We put them aside. And, in fact, that's what happens. If you use a different way of analysing the microbiome, say um, Metaflan or other tools, they typically identify half of the DNA in a sample. So 50% of the reads will actually contribute to your uh, results. Mm -hmm. The other 50% are, we don't know what this is, and they go to the side Mm -hmm. and just are are left there as a mystery piece. It's because of these different genomes that are in the gut that give that result. But by characterising and defining them, microbiome actually gets that 90% uh, utility from our reads. So 90% of the reads we recover are actually identifiable Mm. and contribute to your report. So it's a really complete view of the microbiome. Mm -hmm. There's still that 10% um, that's there. Turns out most of that is bacteriophage DNA. Hmm. So this is the viruses that infect bacteria in the gut. And that's so interesting. Bacteriophages are really uh, fascinating because they probably regulate the microbiome as well. There's probably a layer of regulation happening where different populations are being encouraged to grow or suppressed through the virome. This is the the viral aspect Mm -hmm. of the microbiome. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that so little research has been done that there's no clinical utility to the information. Mm -hmm. So we know it's there. Uh, We can identify many of these different families of the viruses that are infecting the bacteria, but we don't know yet what that means. Mm -hmm. So it needs more research to get to that level of clinical utility, but we see that being something that will be incorporated in gut microbiome analysis in the near future. Yep. Awesome. And on the microbiomics report under sample composition, it's under novel, yeah. which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and another thing too, you've touched on it a little bit, that was kind of an aha moment for a lot of us here is, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about, at least from a clinical perspective, the microbiome as a, a census. You know, we're sort of going in there and we're saying who's there, who's not there, who should be there, who's not there. Uh, or who shouldn't be there. And what you're doing now is really exposing the the metabolites, you know, the things that the bacteria are responsible for creating, not creating. And at the end of the day, the, the clinical utility of the, the microbiome, you know, really is about how they're impacting our health. So these microbial metabolites are critically important. So is there a way like of, you know, can you talk a little bit about those specific microbial metabolites and how did you guys decide on the ones that you did? Yeah, so I think it's important just to sort of frame that in a way that um, I think is quite useful. It's the same data. So we get this sequencing data set back from a sample, uh, these you know these pieces of DNA that we've fragmented up and then sequenced through our machine and stitched back together into organisms to identify. And that data has two 
dimensions to it. You have a species dimension, mm. which tells you the list of who is there. You know, all those long Latin names that are pretty much impossible to pronounce. <laughs> um, after you, you say for Calibacterium prausnitzii about 500 times, you get kind of good at it, but still. Um, Latin's a dead tongue. No one knows how to say it properly. So just say it confidently and you'll be fine. <laughs> so that's the first dimension of data, species. But there is a second dimension of data, and that is function. So in that aspect, looking at function, you don't need to name these things. You don't need to uh, give them these, these Latin tongue twisters. What you're doing is just knowing here is a species or a genome even. It has the functional gene for butyrate production. Then we'll call it a butyrate producer and we'll count up in the microbiome how many butyrate producers there are as a percentage of the whole. And that lets you know what your functional capacity is in your gut to produce butyrate. And you can do that for any metabolite that the gene sequence is known for. Mm. So I guess that's the first starting point in how do we come up with our list of metabolites mm -hmm. is you need to know what you're looking for. Um, we, are, we already know there are other metabolites in the human gut that are important, but the genes that do the processes haven't been discovered. Mm. And so we, we have that gap in knowledge to identify them. In the future, hopefully we'll understand what that gene is and then start to be able to bring that into reports. But without that bit of information, you can't find what you don't know you're looking for. Sure. Yeah. Do you ever get a sense of like how far along we are in, in understanding, you know, how many metabolites could be assessed? Like, are we at the tip of the iceberg or, and I know there's no way to really know, but like, I'm just wondering if you lay at night thinking about this. <laughs> oh, every night, surely. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> Look, uh, the microbiome is complex and diverse and astonishing in just how unique it is person to person. So there is so much to be learned yet. Yeah. Um, the the amount of metabolites that we would report, you know, it's uh, a few dozen really, mm -hmm. is only a fraction of what a microbiome would be capable of producing. You know, you're talking possibly, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of different things mm -hmm. being produced or broken down by different microbiomes. And that's different person to person as well. So hugely complex. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't need to understand everything. What we're really trying to look at here are which of those metabolites have the biggest impacts on human health. Mm -hmm. And so that's the second filter that's applied to what we report on. We're looking for those metabolites that have been shown in clinical studies to actually mean something important for how well a person is. And that's what has come up to the list that we have in the current test. These are metabolites and functions that we know the genetic sequence of, so know the pathway that, that makes them, and also have been clinically shown to have a very direct and strong impact on wellness. And that's what gives us the list that we report on. Love yep, it. Makes Love sense. It. And it really has become an aha moment, like the whole concept of it does it really matter that laundry list of who's in attendance when someone else can pick up that job? It's just it's just fascinating to us. Mm -hmm. Um but another yeah, it's a shift in thinking so much it, because it really you know is. We, we're so used to, to going through and going, look, yeah, do do we have Akamancia here? Akamancia, right. it's it's good. Everyone says it's good. We have to have it. But it turns out it's not the case at all. Right. Um Akamancia, I refer to them as celebrities. They they are well known, they were they were discovered early. Um, but it doesn't mean they're the only thing that can do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And there is quite likely organisms that do the exact same function as Akkermansia that haven't been discovered yet. 
And so when a person's result gets back and they might not have a chemistry, they might freak out. It's like, don't worry about that. There's quite likely Mm -hmm. something new. You might even have your own species that's uh, unnamed that's doing that for you. So it's a real shift in thinking and you should never be too stressed about missing something. Mm -hmm. Um, If something is absent from your microbiome, that's entirely normal. There is no single healthy microbiome from that species list capacity. It really is a healthy microbiome in terms of its functions, in terms of is my gut able to produce things that keep me healthy? And that's what all the research is pointing to now. I yeah. Love that. <clears throat> well, and Patty will know too. I think the what? shift in thinking happened to me pretty intensely when I, <laughs> I had this question of like, is dysbiosis even a thing? Right. You know, because it's if we're looking at that idea of who's there, who's not there, but the function of the microbiome is what you want it to be, then is it a dysbiosis? Right. Yeah. And certainly the, the dysbiosis can be a functional dysbiosis. Right. Mm-hmm. So a functional imbalance where you, you don't have the right combination of things to do. Uh, to be done in your gut that would result in good health. You can still have a species dysbiosis, though, as far as we know. And that comes down to the balance of microbes being uneven to such a degree that you lose functional balance at the same time. Right. Mm. And you see this in examples of a single species overgrowing in a gut. You know, um, sometimes you see in a report maybe 40% or 50% of all organisms are just one single species. And what that means is that your gut, is being overcrowded with the functions that that one thing can do. And it's really becoming a bit of a specialist gut. It's a gut that can only do a few things really well. And that's not healthy. That's not going to give you that robustness and that resilience to be able to respond to the different things your gut's going to see across a week Mm -hmm. or a year. Uh, And that's where that idea of uh, diversity comes in. You want a diverse gut, a gut that has many different organisms at similar levels that can do many different functions because that is giving you that resilience and robustness that leads to healthy outcomes. I love it. Okay. So as we're admitting now we're in our infancy still as uh, in understanding this microbiome, also part of the microbiome is the mycobiome yeast, right? And here in the United States, in the personal me- personalized medicine space, everyone's talking parasites and yeast. Yeast, 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 parasites, parasites, parasites. What's your experience in prevalence on this metagenomic platform? And first of all, is it the correct platform to be looking for these things? And how prevalent is it? What are, what's your experience in seeing these things? Yeah, this is so fascinating. And I think it's important to sort of break these into two discussions okay. so that the parasite's separate from the yeast. And we'll start with parasites because... They're a little bit easier to sort of understand. They're, they're bigger organisms. You know, they're, they're actually um, my, uh, they're visible under the microscope, so mm-hmm. you can actually see them on a slide. And um, these are mostly important. Some of these are real pathogens. Mm-hmm. Um, they are in the gut. They're across the world. Different uh, prevalences in different populations. Uh, sometimes they're commensal. Sometimes they might be beneficial. Mm-hmm. An example of this is the blastocystis, right. where we, up until recently, we thought all blastocystis might be pathogenic, but every bit of research in the last 20 years is saying, actually, you see it really commonly in healthy people. And so blastocystis as a grouping is not a pathogen anymore. It's not considered that way. Having said that, there are subgroups. There are different types. And the genetic evidence was really lacking. Um, there wasn't much information around why there are subtypes or how genomically distinct they are. But with these subtypings, we, the research was showing that some of them seem to associate with disease more often than others. 
it was still a gap in understanding. And even today, we're not really sure necessarily which subgroups might be the ones that are more associated with uh, health or wellness, but it's starting to emerge and we're getting closer to an answer. So genetically, what Microba can say is that we know these subtypes are probably different uh, genus level classifications. Hmm. And in some cases, different families wow. of mm. sisters. There is a huge amount of genetic diversity hmm. between organisms that we just group together and call blasto. Hmm. Now, within that, you can start to unpick and unpiece those relationships and hopefully get to a point where we understand, okay, we'll call this a species now because it's genomically uh, unique in identity, mm -hmm. and then look at the data and look for disease associations, which might start to reveal and you know, unravel this mystery around this organism. Mm. Interesting. But is, is the metagenomic platform the best place to be looking for these things like blasto or, or other parasites? So, so parasites as a whole uh, cover so many different organisms, and, and some of these are you know, worms, you know, macroscopic things. Mm -hmm. uh, others like blasto are very tiny. And there's a bit of an effect where the smaller the organism is, the more bacterially it behaves and that means that you get hmm. an even mix of the organism across the sample, okay. um, which means that when you do take a swab of a, a piece of stool from the toilet paper, you've got a very good chance of the organisms being present there at a percentage that represents the uh, the whole stool, and that means that you'll get a good result. So blasto works really quite well. We detect it uh, accurately in the samples. When the organisms are bigger and they tend not to be so homogenous in a sample, uh, and that, that can actually be due to the life cycle as well. If some organisms go through a shedding phase yeah. and then a reproduction phase, you have this cyclical nature. And on any given day, even in active infection, you might not be producing any of these parasites. Because of that, that uh, inconsistency, you might not be swabbing on a day where you would collect the parasite. And so it won't show up in your DNA sequencing results. Mm -hmm. And because of that reason... Metagenomics isn't the best way to pick up parasites if you suspect them. Mm -hmm. uh, microscopy is still a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. Even some of the, the qPCR methods, which can pick up fragmented DNA from dead cells, mm -hmm. um, they can work quite well too. But if you have it in the sample, there is no doubt that we can detect it and we pick it up and report it. Yeah. It's just down to the, mm. the chance of actually capturing yeah. the parasite in a small swab. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's really quite a, a simple approach to that. Yeah, it makes uh, sense too. Yeast are different to that though. Okay. Yeah, they're small. They behave more like bacteria. So you have more um, evenness of that in the sample. They don't do this cyclical effect in their life cycles. So you get um, better consistency of detection for those organisms. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and I was just going to say too, you know, that even with microscopy for parasites, you know, the old adage is essentially the three-day, right? That's why we still right. have the three-day sample. It's it's trying to account for all those variances and, 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 Shedding and how parasites right. interact. That's right, yeah. So three days and whole stools, so taking an entire uh, motion really gives you the best chance of finding these organisms in the sample. But, um, yeah, there has been some really good progress looking at the, the PCR approach because the DNA of the organism can break down um, but little fragments remain, and qPCR targets small fragments typically, so it's showing pretty good effectiveness uh, in specific cases. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> well, 
When we talk to um, clinicians a lot about genomics, um, meaning like human genomics, you know, a lot of our conversations around things like single nucleotide polymorphism, SNPs, and uh, we have this conversation often about, you know, your genes aren't your desti destiny. Just because you have a SNP doesn't necessarily mean that's impacting your clinical outcomes. Um, and I, I wonder, too, when we're looking at a microbiome sample and the genomes there, is it a similar sort of thing where just because these genomes and these genes are present, um, does that, does that, yeah, does that mean that they're actually yeah. impacting or is, is it different? Yeah, I, I see it the same way. Like a, a SNP in a human genome can be silent. It can be a, an inconsequential mutation that doesn't change much at all, at least as far as we know. Um, in the microbiome, it's the same kind of idea. A single mutation or even a single strain of a species being different may not have any impact. Um, this could, could just be natural diversity, just you know, how the world works and this is fine. So it's not enough to say that just because it's different, it's bad. Um, I think that's the wrong approach at all. In fact, we know diversity is good, so being different is a great thing. Mm -hmm. But when you have the resolution that lets you see these differences, you can then start to look for associations with uh, greater detail and you can find those SNPs or those differences which are bad. And you look at your health data, you look at the population data, you look at the clinical history of people with these certain patterns and start to tease apart and, and go, hang on, you know, it turns out that this, this SNP or this strain looks like it's associating with diseases and it looks like it's doing bad things for the gut. Or more frequently the opposite, we find strains that only associate with healthy people. You only see certain organisms in people with no reported history of disease. And when they're missing from the gut, when they're absent, you can start to see that there are these complications that happen. Uh, and it tends to be not just one, but a cohort, a community being absent from the gut appears to be uh, the origin of at least some diseases. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. I and that. I, yeah, I, I also wonder too, on the report, you know, a lot of times we say your microbiome has a higher or lower potential to produce something like butyrate. Um, and so, you know, does that mean that it's likely that it is producing more butyrate or is it, um, or is that different? Is that a wrong way to think about it? Yeah. So it's important to understand the report in terms of how we produce it. What we're doing is we are counting the pieces of DNA that come from a sample and from that stitching back together the picture of the microbiome. So when we talk about the butyrate result, we're looking at the number of pieces of DNA we recovered that uh, match the butyrate gene pathway, which means it comes from an organism that can produce butyrate. It doesn't mean we counted or detected butyrate the molecule directly. Um, that would be a metabolite. And so there's... Um, ways to do it separately. You can do a short chain fatty acid assay and detect butyrate directly in the gut. The report that uses metagenomics is looking at just the organisms that are able to do this. And so that's that functional capacity concept. It's saying if your gut was given the right inputs and the right environment, it could produce this to a certain level. Okay. It doesn't mean it's being produced. And you've got to always have that context. And so really... It lets you know what your gut is capable of doing, for better or for worse, and through that you can understand how to make the most of it and how to really optimise your gut for your own wellness. Now, it's a really important nuance because people get their results and say, oh, I've got high butyrate. 
um, that's great. It says, well, no, if you're not having the right inputs and eating the right things for that, then you might not be producing any butyrate whatsoever. Uh, you've got to make the most of that, and that's a really important nuance, I think, to describe. In many cases, having both pieces of data is great. So having your functional capacity and your actual level detected together, because then you can really start to understand what's happening. Um, as an example, in some disease states, butyrate, uh, butyrate absorption and uptake into the cells is blocked, uh, and you actually have a problem where your gut stops absorbing butyrate and that's bad. You know, that's an energy source for your gut. Mm -hmm. So if you did a stool test on that, you would have a high butyrate level, uh, the actual molecule in the stool. And by default, you might think, oh, this is good. Butyrate's a, you know, a healthy thing, but it's actually not. It's actually a problem because butyrate should be getting absorbed. And you might see that, say, your microbiome's capacity is only low or average to produce butyrate, but the actual level's high. It's like, hang on. This right. is an issue. Right. right. This is this is malabsorption of butyrate, which is a disease state. Together, that really provides such a, a really useful layer of information to understand the, the reality of what's happening. And we're so excited because here at Genova, we measure those things. We measure all of these metabolites directly. Plus, we have the microbiomics and the genetic potential to make them. So we are peeling back the layers of the onion clinically. And it's fascinating. So we're excited to have more data to continue to come. Yeah, and absolutely. And it helps to clean, clear up the research too, because if you look right. at studies around Crohn's colitis, and you'll say these people have right. high levels of butyrate, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? I thought butyrate was good. And mm -hmm. so now it's like we're understanding the mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So in those cases, the colonocytes are basically dysfunctional and they're not doing what they should be doing, which means they're not absorbing that butyrate and they're, they're really... You know, in that state, which is leading to the ulceration and all the different complications that happen. Yeah. yeah. And I also just want to point out that, you know, Microba is based in Australia and, you know, you do metagenomics all over the entire world. And we know that depending on where you live in the world, your microbiome could be remarkably different based on environmental factors, different diets, what's around you, toxins, pollutants, etc. So, when we partnered with Microbe and we brought out the microbiomics, we did our own reference range here in the United States. And a question we always get asked is about reference ranges. And so with that, I think my question to you is, knowing that you've dealt with many countries with, with your technology, how different and or same are some of the countries in the world that would surprise you? And number two, what's the end number that you feel comfortable <laughs> with or are confident enough in that reference I range? I thought you were going to say, how bad are Americans' guts? <laughs> Okay, that was the sub that was the subplot. <laughs> I probably won't comment on that later one, I guess. Um, <laughs> because, you know, and let's be nice and fair here, everyone's gut is different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really comes down to the individual. Right. Um, look, yeah, it, it's fascinating to think about how much diversity occurs between different uh, countries and different cultures, you know. Certainly, we know the microbiome is driven by food. And I think food is one of those really distinct cultural differences. You know, different mm -hmm. cultures very clearly have their own things they like to eat. And you know, it's um, it's almost inherent in that that you would have then different species of bacteria growing up when exposed to different food sources. So coming into it, we expected to see that. Um, but we didn't make any presumptions, you know. We're mm -hmm. scientists. So we said, look, we're coming into a, a new region like the USA. We will define the healthy cohort there, the ranges based on the population. So we do that testing first. We understand what 
the, the spread and the, the spectrum of results looks like in that group and then use that for our reporting. So very um, you know, robust and, and proper way to do things. Having said that, coming into new countries often, we see that the microbiomes can be quite similar. Hmm. And in that, it, it's similar in function. So the functional capacity that we've been talking about, those um, the number of species that can perform certain functions and produce metabolites, the ranges of those tend to be really close. Hmm. Um, so even though there are different species behind that that might be driving these unique uh, variations in different cultures. When you look at the functional capacity, they line up between the regions a lot more than we may have originally thought. But looking back on it, it's, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. You know, if it's the functions that actually drive health, wow. then for healthy people, you would expect to see them at similar levels. And that's what we're starting to observe. So we're still gathering data on this. And we've, we've got the US, we've got some European countries coming in, but we will be publishing this uh, at some point in the future because it's so fascinating to understand uh, really how different we all are but also how similar we all are, mm. which, you know, turns out to be quite remarkably close. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. That's fascinating. <clears throat> all and, of this is fascinating. Yeah, I know. And it's 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 so exciting to think about where, where this is going to be, you know, even a year from now, five mm -hmm. years from now, ten years mm -hmm. from now how much we're going to learn and um, and, and yeah. also undiscover, I think, is just as fun too. Unlearning, right. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Totally. Learn how we were wrong. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the nice thing about science. It, it's it's this self-correcting process, you know, right. the, the scientific method. That's right. We have an idea, let's test it, we're right or wrong, <laughs> and then just do that over and over again. Um, yeah. yeah, we might learn, like butyrate, you know, being high in disease states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something we've got, oh, we've learned this now. Right. There will be cases of that coming out where you know, what we thought we knew might not be the case. Um, but, yeah, science will bring that forward and be proud of the process that corrects what we thought we knew and don't anymore, but also what we discover. Um, and I really see some fantastic uh, potential in understanding all those other metabolites that are being produced by the gut mm -hmm. that we have no idea what, what they're doing. There will be a point where we can start to look at the genetic information uh, almost in a hypothesis-free approach. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying, hey, you know, where is a butyrate gene? Let's look for that and characterize mm -hmm. it. We should get to a point where we can go, okay, let's look for patterns in DNA, not even genes, but you know, recurring sequences mm -hmm. as code that associate with health. And then in the populations, to say, look, this pattern of DNA, it may be a gene, it might not be a gene, we don't know, is appearing more frequently in certain conditions. And then come back to that region and start to go, what is this region of DNA doing? And if it is a gene, you know, understand is it a metabolite or is it some regulatory piece of DNA that's doing something you know, on top of that? Yeah, that's where I think we will start to really uh, understand the complete data set and it's such a like a nerdy informatics approach, but it's really <laughs> powerful. And I'm sure there'd be a really big computer somewhere that we'd have to use, but it will come in without any biases or preconceptions and just ask the question, what does the data tell us? Mm -hmm. I think that that's where we'll start to really see some fantastic discoveries happening. I love it. I yeah, love it. yeah, and I think you know, just to tie that back into the clinical aspect, you're you're kind of talking about being adaptable as scientists, and I think that's an important thing for us as clinicians too to understand that you know maybe what we thought was effective 
previously that we have to be adaptable in our thinking and integrate the the new truths that might be coming out. Yes, certainly. Yeah. And as this partnership with Microba and and Genova continues, and as we start to look more at the genotypic and and phenotypic biomarkers, this is going to just blow up and evolve, and we're totally geeking out over this. People who are listening are like, all right, shut up, you guys, enough. I know, right? (laughs) But as it continues... Ken knows we literally email him and call him six times a week. So this is going to continue. Sorry, and dude. I love it. So sorry, dude. But that being I love said, it. it's great. We are so honored that you came and spoke to us. And hopefully this is the first of many more. Um, but before we do let you go, we do have one last question that I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman. Yeah, we always end with a surprise question to, uh, to, to put you in a, in a pickle. <laughs> And uh, it's, called, it's called the fireball. Get ready for this. I have two of them for you. Oh, no. He's going to hate me about this. But Go. so the first one is we were talking about organelles. What is your favorite? What do you think is the most amazing organelle within the human cell? Oh, so specific, just to human cells. Oh, I was about to get like organelles. The microbiome is like, you know, prokaryotes. They don't have them. But, <laughs> but the human cell, look, you know, surely the powerhouse, right? Come on. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Come on now. Okay, follow-up question. That was a layup, Which Michael. is better? Kangaroo steak or <laughs> cow steak? Because we didn't know this was a thing until we started working together. So we need to know more about this. This, this is a really fascinating one too, of course. <laughs> um, the farm that I grew up on, we, we started the chat today with, it, it was a cattle farm. So it was wow. beef. Uh, and I do enjoy a good you know, cow steak. Um, but even beyond that, it turns out that kangaroo meat, you know, it's, good it's healthy in in this sense of fat content Mm. but fascinating kangaroo meat has the highest concentration of l-carnitine of all the meats oh i didn't know now l-carnitine is the precursor to trimethylamine that the microbiome Mm -hmm. can produce if it has the capacity and that's linked to cardiovascular health and diabetes and a few other things so kangaroo meat could be unhealthy for you if your gut microbiome has a high potential to produce trimethylamine it's going to take all of that L-carnitine, convert it into TMA, goes to your liver, turns into TMAO, does all the bad things. So because of that reason, I'll stick with my first answer, beef being the, the best thing. <laughs> okay, but can, because delici- kangaroo might be bad for you, and you should get your gut test done to know that. <laughs> but is kangaroo delicious or no? Are you saying no? It's delicious, but that's good. No, it's, okay. it's fine. It, it could go tough if you cook it uh, poorly. It gets quite chewy, but yeah, <laughs> it's nice. I recommend you try it. It's actually a, a good flavor. Um, but yeah, of course I go with the, the geeky microbiome-based answer. That, that was great. I love it. it. I love it. Well, like I said, Dr. Ken McGrath, we're so glad you came on the show. Hopefully the first of many more appearances. And of course I'll email you 16 times next week about other questions that I have, but <laughs> I love it. we're so grateful for you, Ken. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. It was great. That was fun. That was awesome. It, it was. And it's like when you learn something new and it makes you relook at everything that you thought you know and realize you don't know anything. But I was more struck by when we talk to someone this smart, Michael, yeah. as we do a lot, you start to channel your inner geekiness. I mean, when <laughs> someone asks what about what's your favorite about? organ, they're like, oh, Golgi apparatus? Like, what kind of question was that? <laughs> I mean, so he was talking about the ribosome. And as he was talking, I was thinking in my head, I was like, man, ribosomes are so crazy cool. <laughs> like, they take RNA and then they look at three little letters and then say, here's the amino acid that goes with it. It's like a decoder ring for uh, RNA. And how cool is that? And then I was like, I wonder what Ken's favorite organelle was. What do you want me to say? Well, I just, I am that person. I just want to say, I'm quite grateful 
that the two of you live on opposite sides of the planet. <laughs> because to what? put you in the same room would just totally be geek overload. It would shatter the space-time continuum? <laughs> Talk about brains blood. Next time on The Lab Report, Dr. Sarah Campbell. Exercise PhD from Harvard who studies the microbiome in athletes. I've, this connection between exercise, athletic performance, uh, and microbiome is so interesting. Fascinating. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So I got our tickets to Vegas. Thank our you. plane tickets. Thank you so much because I hate doing that. And I made sure that I got the window seat the whole time. You're the worst. Well, actually, you're not because when I sit in the window seat, I close the, the, the shade. Right, right. <laughs> I don't mind being in the middle. I actually thought you were going to say, I got our plane tickets and I put you in a different row. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about it, actually. You're the worst. (laughs) You're the worst. You're in the back of the plane.